I'm Malia, and you're listening to Join the Table, a podcast where I explore myths, causes, and stories surrounding hunger in Maine. Can you ask for help and still be independent? Is anyone truly self-sufficient? This episode, we're going to go to my local food pantry in Bar Harbor. We'll speak to a previous client of the pantry and a new one, and chat with a few professionals working in the food system. By speaking with these people, I'm trying to build an understanding of some of the barriers that stand in the way of people accessing food resources. I went to the pantry one morning to visit Jenny Jones, the director, and talk to people as they came in and out. The door jingles as you walk down a ramp into a room in the basement of the YWCA. Someone will greet you at the podium, and you'll see several large shelves and a couple refrigerators, and a small display with baskets of vegetables. It's not overflowing baskets, supermarket style. These are modest, almost sparse. At many pantries in Maine, there would be a box of goods you could take that were already packed. But this pantry is a bit unique. Clients can come in, grab an empty box or a small cart, and shop, choosing their items rather than taking a pre-packed box. The pantry is also unique because it has a fridge that stocks meat and dairy, and they offer a small selection of fresh produce. You holler when you need help, sir. An older woman came up to Jenny, who was standing at the podium you see as you enter the pantry. Hi, how are you today? You're new to us? Welcome. So I'm just going to have you fill out this form. The new client sat for a while with the sign-up card. She didn't seem like she was in a hurry, so I went over to sit with her and ask a few questions, and also to see if she needed any help with the sign-up. I asked her, so this is your first time at the pantry, what's brought you here today? And the moment I asked it, her response gave me a kick of reality about how personal that question can be. Tell me what's brought you here today? She seemed to choke up, and there was a really long pause. It's a habit. What I heard was, I'm alone, in the house. As I sat with her, I was so glad she'd made the move to come to the pantry. This new client is 76 years old, and she's still working. We haven't started yet. We got done in November. But the job doesn't continue past November, and when I'm talking to her now, it's mid-spring and her job hasn't started yet. Seasonal work is common in Bar Harbor and many main towns because of the tourist economy. It was early April when I spoke to this new client, and I think money was stretched pretty thin for her. The rate of people who are food insecure in Maine. In other words, people who don't always know where their next meal is coming from, or if it will be enough, has been elevated around 16.4% for many years in Maine, making Maine seventh worst in the nation in food insecurity. While Bar Harbor, where the pantry's located, only has a year-round population of about 5,000, people come from many surrounding towns, some traveling quite far because they either don't have a pantry near them, or they need to come to this one because of the variety of food offered. Many other pantries in Maine can't offer that. They don't have the funding. Here's Jenny, the director. For the whole year of 2017, we saw 405 households, um, and that was about 900 and... 20 individuals, so almost a 1,000 individuals. I think there's a lot of people within Hancock that are not coming to the pantry. And I would say that 
the hardest person to draw in are the people that they just might not know we're there and we haven't figured out a way to reach them. Um, you know, they might not have access to the internet or TV or things like that. And then a lot of it is just pride. People are very prideful and, you know, they don't want to admit that they need that support, which I completely understand. But I hope that once they decide to walk through the pantry doors, that they realize that they're not shamed. You know, we're excited to have them. We want to end hunger. We want to help them. To learn more about barriers people face when they're trying to access food resources, I visited the Main Hunger Initiative in Portland to speak with Michelle. So I'm Michelle, uh, Michelle Lamb. I'm the program manager with the Preble Street Main Hunger Initiative. Her organization works to increase federal nutrition programs. A major one for adults is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The acronym for this is SNAP. SNAP is a federally funded program. It's different from charitable programs like food pantries because it's federally funded and the recipient gets a card with a small balance to purchase food at approved grocery stores. There are pretty strict income requirements and asset tests, like a household can't have more than 2,000 in countable resources, like money in a savings or checking account, to qualify. It's raised to 3,000 if there's someone 60 and older or a person with a disability in the home. And if you're unemployed, you have three months to find a job or you're kicked off. Currently, the Farm Bill, which holds all legislation about SNAP, is being changed and renewed, and is projected to include more restrictions to SNAP. Here's Michelle. And then we also help support the charitable food organizations like food pantries and soup kitchens. We know that food pantries and soup kitchens are important, but they're not the answer to ending hunger. So that's why our you know work is uh, multi-pronged in, in that aspect. But our work, we like to define it as doing community organizing and advocacy. So the organizing is working with those community groups, identifying gaps in service and helping them implement programs. And then our advocacy would be going up to the state house and, you know, testifying in support or against bills that may help or harm our clients or, you know, drafting letters to our congressional delegation in support of protecting SNAP or, you know, a whole variety of different advocacy efforts. Michelle noticed that many people don't know that they would qualify for SNAP or it's unclear how to sign up or that the program even exists. A lot of things that Jennifer Jones noticed with the food pantry But Michelle mentioned that the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS, no longer does any outreach for SNAP, making her organization one of the few that does outreach and application assistance. In combination with no outreach, the DHHS administration has been implementing restrictions that have removed many Mainers from the program. A 2017 report that surveyed 2,000 Mainers using food pantries from every county found that a quarter of the folks at pantries had lost their SNAP benefits in the last year. And while the DHHS administration doesn't make it easy to get benefits, Michelle noticed that when she does occasionally do outreach, there are personal and psychological barriers to access as well. You know, Mainers are proud people, and um, they feel like they've worked their whole lives, and, you know, they don't want to rely on public benefits, so there's some often that mentality. I've met a lot of particularly seniors um, at food pantries who I would say you know, you clearly need more food. You're here at the food pantry. Would you like to sign up for food stamps? And then, oh, no, 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 that's not for me. Or, you know, and then trying to break down those barriers and help them understand that they did work hard their whole life and that these programs exist to help them in these times of need. It seems that those attitudes about using food assistance may come from the perception that people who use benefits aren't trying to help themselves or make efforts to stop using the benefits. You know, for a senior, maybe it is going to be long term, but for families or individuals, it's often just maybe 
they need it for six months to get back on their feet. Um, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities did a study that found that uh, first-time users were off the program within nine months. So, you know, there's a perception out there that people get on it, they're on it forever. But a lot of people do just use it to get through until they get a new job or things pick up. Michelle noticed many barriers people face when accessing SNAP. And food pantries also have challenges with making sure they reach people who need them. Recently, Jenny, the director, spoke at a free community dinner to let people know about the pantry and who it serves. At this event, she met a previous client of the food pantry. To learn more about what using the pantry was like, I went to go visit this woman, Deb, at her home and horse farm in Hancock County. Uh, the event was an event that is held at our the church I attend. Um, it's for anyone. It's for the community. It's called Soup with Substance, and it features a simple soup and salad meal with a speaker who speaks about something that is pertinent to the community. And so Jennifer came from the Bar Harbor Food Pantry that night and talked about the food pantry. And there was a question and answer period at the end. And even though it made me a little nervous to talk, I raised my hand and spoke up. So, and the reason I did was she had mentioned that a lot of the um, clients at the food pantry are from the blue collar segment of the population from a demographic point of view. And um, I wanted to speak about it because I had been from a different demographic when I utilized the food pantry. During the summer of 2008, Deb was feeling comfortable with her salary job at a real estate company. She had benefits and was able to buy a small house for her and her daughters. But just as she was settling into the new house, the recession hit. You know, it was a total surprise to me when the CEO walked in the office and asked to sit with me in the conference room and told me she was let, they were letting me go. Okay, well, now what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to find a job? It's winter on Mount Desert Island when there's a smaller amount of jobs being offered. And um, I had pretty much figured I was going to stay there. So that's why I spoke up, because it's not, it's not just for a certain demographic. Food pantries are not there, and food resources are not there just for people who have low income or have lost a job or have seasonal work or whatever. It's really there for everybody who needs it. And um, the other piece of it was that I had a lot of kind of embarrassment when I was initially going uh, to go to the food pantry. By standing up to share her story, she was trying to show that life can cause all kinds of people to need assistance, and that we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about that. When I was visiting Deb, I came into the kitchen and she was flipping through a cookbook. I'm looking for the roasted root vegetables and curry sauce that I'm going to cook tonight. Obviously you can make roasted root vegetables out of anything, but I really like this recipe because it has some some root vegetables that people usually don't use, like rutabaga and turnip, and parsnip too. But when Deb lost her job and her limited income from unemployment went to... You know, mortgage and bills and and day-to-day paying for insurance and car and family and everything. She said it was really hard to find the money for food. And when she was supplementing with food from the pantry, she said her diet changed. It can be really challenging to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables with limited income. She does recall getting creative. You got to select seven canned vegetables, okay, at that time. And I don't really like a lot of canned vegetables, like canned peas and canned beans and things like that are not very 
appealing. But one of the things they had in the cans was corn. So I always got corn and usually we had corn chowder and a salad was one of our meals almost every week. There were other pieces that were harder to get creative with. I didn't feel as healthy. I mean, the other piece was pasta. We did a lot more pasta dishes. So there was a lot more carbohydrate in our meals than normally I would have planned. But it was really hard to cook and provide the way that I liked to, that a way that I felt more nutritious. And this is one of the challenges with modern hunger. Sometimes it doesn't mean the person is literally starving, though it can, but they may only have access to the kinds of foods that contribute to diabetes, heart disease, obesity, or cancer, or they might not be foods that feel good or nutritious to the person. Fresh fruits and vegetables can be harder to find in the stores in places where poverty is highest, and they're generally just plain more expensive than their canned or processed counterparts. So processed foods that are high in sugars, fats, or sodium are often the easiest to find at the pantry or the easiest to access anywhere. After I sat with the new client, the elderly woman who you met before who was a first-time pantry goer, I asked if she'd like to shop together. Would you like someone to shop with today? <laughs> I don't need that much, just a few things. What are you, what are you looking for? I've got enough canned goods, I don't need canned goods. What sounds really good to you? Carrots, maybe. We've got carrots. We went to go find her some carrots and other produce to supplement the canned food she had at home, which is something that many pantries are not able to do for their clients. Even for this new client, there were only small lunchbox-sized packages of baby carrots. After having these conversations, I came to understand that sometimes it was a physical barrier, like the person didn't have transportation to the pantry, or the pantry couldn't supply enough food, or the person had been kicked off SNAP benefits. But sometimes it was a more nuanced or psychological barrier. People didn't know about food resources. Sometimes they were accessing them, but still feeling like they couldn't get proper nutrition, or they're embarrassed to use them because of the prevalent belief that people who access food resources are not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps because they've made bad choices or they're not a hard worker. I'm still left with questions about why these attitudes persist. So I went to go talk to someone who's worked on these issues a lot. I'm Jim Hanna. I've been working in the food system since the early 90s in a number of positions. Currently, I'm executive director of the Cumberland County Food Security Council. One thing that concerns me is the way we talk about, you know, people's ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or, you know, people's ability to advance in the economy without being honest about the obstacles that we've created in this economy and how hard it can be, especially if people are starting from a place that has limited resources as a family. So we talk about generational poverty, trying to help people overcome that, but we really don't make the investments required. We don't acknowledge the history, for example, particularly African-American people whose families were enslaved 150 years ago. We haven't taken the steps to support folks' ability to build up family income or net worth. The Federal Reserve puts out a study every three years about consumer finances. 
In 2016, the study found that the median net worth of a white family is 10 times higher than that of a family who's African American as defined by the census, and 8 times higher than a Hispanic or Latino family. So when Jim talks about folks' ability to build up net worth, he's talking about this and how we clearly haven't been able to use public policy to transcend this inequality. Net worth, by the way, is the total of someone's assets minus their debts or expenses. But there's another major inequality that perpetuates generational poverty for people of any color, and this can be seen in the income difference between the top earners and the bottom, with the top 10% holding 77% of the total wealth in the U.S. and the other 90% of people holding just 23% of that wealth. I mean, I think clearly people enter the race with different places and with different advantages if you're talking about your life and make an analogy between your life being kind of a race and and being part of the economy. So I think the most important thing, the most important starting point for that is to acknowledge that. I think what we don't like to do is tell the truth about that because it makes people who have the advantages feel bad and feel like they feel guilty, feel like they they need to pay something back. I don't think that We need to approach it from that zero-sum or scarce resource approach. I think let's just acknowledge that that's the way it is and that there is enough to bring other people up to the same level of privilege and opportunity. It's not necessarily going to take away advantages from the people, but from the people who are starting a little farther ahead, let's just bring everyone up to that same starting point and give everyone the same advantage to function in the economy. And I think we will flourish as a people, as a nation. Because when someone is struggling to get proper nutrition, it doesn't just affect that person or even just that community. There's a reverberating effect of the injustice. I think our, all our communities suffer when there are people in, when there are kids in our schools who can't learn because their family has limited income and they can't provide proper nutrition. Every kid in that classroom is impacted by that and by that child's inability to fully function in the classroom. And then our economy suffers when that child grows and has had limited uh, success in the educational system and then has to become a member of the economy so and have a job that's meaningful and can generate enough income for their household. Those are long-term impacts of us not investing from the beginning in families and children and allowing those structural obstacles to uh, economic success to continue to be perpetuated. Jim's organization is asking for many things to change because hunger and income inequality is such a complex issue. In Cumberland County, Maine, as kind of a long-term goal, they're working to support local food production in the hands of Mainers as a way to build up the economy and provide more quality food to Mainers as well as more well-paid and meaningful opportunities for work. They also work to support food pantries in any way they can and to fight for basic income security so every household can purchase food and have it be food that the households or individuals choose. Back on Deb's farm, the previous client of the food pantry, we step out of the house for a minute to feed the horses. Oh wait, I was gonna get some carrots. Oh my god. Would you like a little something? Just put it like that. (laughs) That sounds great on a mic. (laughs) If you don't mind walking out through the paddock here, 
Her and her daughter run a youth horse program called Aurora Valters. My daughter and I co-coach together and uh, train the horse. So a year ago, we got the opportunity to uh, lease option the farm and have been building and growing programs and thinking about some additional programs like horses as healers and just to have that contact because horses are very interesting animals. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of heart. They have a social structure like we do. Horses and humans both need to live in herds or families, and we rely on each other for our well-being and safety. And I think horses can teach us to be more in our bodies and in our hearts. You know, our culture and in our world, we spend so much more time in our minds. I don't know if this may sound strange, but if we felt more, and I think some of these you know, problems of um, lack or food insecurity or any kind of lack and insecurity that there is might even out a little bit more. People might be a little bit more concerned about those around them. As of now, in late spring of 2018, the proposed farm bill, which is reauthorized roughly every five years and holds all legislation about SNAP, is in the process of being changed and reauthorized. A bill that included severe cuts to SNAP was just voted down by Congress as of May 2018, but the bill that will be proposed in the near future will likely still have deep cuts to SNAP and other programs, putting more pressure on pantries. Keep an eye out for updates. When so many tangible and intangible barriers to healthy food exist, right now feels like a very important time to support programs that bring people access to food and opportunity. There's a mentality in our country, among many, that anyone can pull themselves up and back into self-sufficiency with enough tenacity. But this thinking doesn't seem to take into consideration how intertwined and interdependent we all are, and how advantaged some of us have been from the start. Thank you for listening. Familiarize yourself with your local food pantry by stopping to get services if you need them, to write a check, donate supplies, donate your time. Many food pantries and shelters have websites where donating is just a click away. To help people in need and ease overburdened charitable organizations, support the expansion of government programs like SNAP benefits, previously known as food stamps, and living wages for Mainers. For more information about the study I used, visit federalreserve.org and click on Survey of Consumer Finances. For the extensive report about hunger in Maine that I used, Google Maine Hunger Pains Report. Good Shepherd Food Bank posted the full report online, while Preble Street posted an abbreviated executive summary. Special thanks to Jim Hanna at the Cumberland County Food Security Council and Michelle Lamb at Preble Street's advocacy branch, the Maine Hunger Initiative. Those are two advocacy and policy-focused organizations trying to look at hunger from a multi-pronged perspective. See if there's a local organization who may have an established working group or council that you could join to get more involved with anti-hunger efforts near you. Thanks this episode to Deb Andrews for sharing her story with me. Thanks to Jennifer Jones of the Bar Harbor Food Pantry and the pantry goers who let me hang out there with a mic. Thank you to my project advisors, Courtney Cullum and Nancy Andrews, for your guidance, and Zach Soros for technical support. Thanks to Zach Kendall for composing all the music for the podcast and for production help. And thank you to my academic advisor, Bonnie Tai, for your support. Thanks to Kim Lopez, Emma Kimball, Noel Rosenberg, and Rose and Steve Demers for listening to drafts of this episode and catching things I couldn't. 
Thanks to College of the Atlantic and the Maine Space Grant Consortium for helping me fund this project. Check out the other episodes in this Join the Table podcast series if you haven't already. Again, thanks for listening.